Ruth Bailey is a history graduate who's woven what she's read in Second World War soldiers' diaries, letters and telegrams into her first novel, Barefoot. Adelaide desperately misses her husband John, who's sent to Egypt after enlisting. She becomes obsessed with the letters he writes her, using them to turn their home into a shrine. Excerpts from the novel were long-listed in the First Pages International Prize 2020 and shortlisted in the NZSA New Zealand Heritage Literary Awards 2021. Well, now Barefoot is completed and published, Clarissa Dunn reads from it. His letters did keep coming, sometimes several in one delivery, sometimes none for weeks. The wait was debilitating. Her hand reaching into the dark interior of the mailbox, fingers folding around the envelope to draw it into the light. The walk back down the path, willing patience to preside until a knife facilitated the careful opening, the pulling out of the letter, the unfolding of the paper, the smoothing and touching. All this was her grand addiction. With each letter, John built her a world. He wrote to her from a camp outside of Cairo, Egypt. She imagined him in his exotic existence, pressing down the nib of his pen, the ink staining in lines and curls, searching for the words that could convey this unimaginable life of his. She agonized over her replies to John. What could she write him? The army told the wives, the families and friends that even the dreariest of details from home could lift a man's spirits in the theatre of war. Would John want to hear about her trips to the department store? Would he marvel, like she had, at the incredible price of silk stockings? Would he laugh as she described her attempts to set a mousetrap in the kitchen? Her world seemed so insignificant and unnewsworthy. She couldn't tell him how she lined the ground with his words, how the soles of her feet would catch the edge of the sheets, how sometimes she would shuffle her toes in under them like a blanket. Her hand refused to form the words. She couldn't tell him how she would stand there and stare down at all his handsome loops and scratches, barefoot and sad. Ruth, I wondered, knowing that you're uh, an historian, a history graduate, Was it the reading of these diaries and letters and telegrams from the Second World War that gave you the idea for Barefoot, or did you come upon them when you started researching it to write it? Um, Mostly the latter, Lynn. Uh, So I get lots of ideas all the time, and for some reason this one struck me at a uh, very strange moment. I was working at a wedding in a synagogue near Harrods in London back in 2003, And um, after setting up the tables, I remember sitting down in a cloakroom to wait out the ceremony before I had to serve at the reception. And I pulled out my W.H. Smith exercise book and began writing down this image, which was of a woman who already had a name, Mrs. Brunner, standing in a hallway, rubbing her hand where a wound used to be. And for whatever reason, that stuck with me for the next 20 years. What's sort of brought in the military side of it is originally um, I had watched Gaylene Preston's wonderful documentary, War Stories Our Mothers Never Told Us, about women's experiences in New Zealand in World War II, and particularly the sections about them interacting with the US Marines. And originally this uh, the story, particularly when I put it through the Masters of Creative Writing course at Auckland University, um, still had a whole character, a whole section about the US Marines. That's ended up being chopped 
but I carried on with that military theme and um, discovered just the most amazing, amazing stories about life in Egypt and Libya during the um, early part of World War II. I suspect it must have been really emotional for you, Ruth, when you were doing your research, as historians do. And actually, uh, I think you've spoken about this, holding telegrams and documents in, in your hands, you know, and maybe not so much the official information, but those handwritten notations, those handwritten letters and postcards. I mean, they're so moving. They are. So um, I was lucky enough to be able to do research at the Kippenberger um, Military Archive in Waiuru, um, Alexander Turnbull in Wellington, and the Auckland War Memorial Museum as well. And yeah, that telegram, holding that piece of paper in my hand, where the government is telling the family that their son has been killed in action. It's just an incredibly sad thing to see. But also a lot of really funny things to read. So the thing that I really took away from the soldiers' diaries and their letters home was the amount of mischief and comedy there was. So in amongst all the fighting, um, there was a lot of downtime and the soldiers... They, they just got up to all sorts of naughty little goings-on, which um, I've tried to sort of put a couple of those in the book. So quite a, quite a paradox of emotions. We have a lot of perspective of Adelaide receiving the letters, but also from John's perspective of writing, and I, I love the way you wrote this, telling them news without saying anything so that your letter doesn't arrive to your loved one with a sense of assassination of sentences and paragraphs, you know, searching for words to convey this alternate life. And this, I thought, a key phrase, letters are the soldier's lifeline. The anticipation and relief of having an envelope in your hand, a reminder that you had a different life once. You know, Just a reminder of how powerful it was for the soldiers receiving news from home when they were in the middle of hell as John is. Yeah, well, I think you forget now in 2022 how easy it is to get informational communication or keep in touch with people you know you've got text you've got messaging um you've got um zoom calls for example but back then you know it was a, a boat ride for weeks on end you know for anything to to get to the other side of the world so you know you really i guess would have, would have treasured when those letters and parcels arrived we first get to know adelaide and she is it's, I mean, a woman of her time, of course, but I get a sense that she really feels inadequate, and that comes back to her childhood. Yeah, so Adelaide's, um, we get a bit of her backstory in part one, where she is brought up by a quite strict solo father, her mother having left when she was a child, and uh, quite a religious father as well, and just starting to get to an age where she recognises that she doesn't have the freedom that other children around her do and starts to sort of push against that um, with some um, devastating consequences. And it sort of leads into her meeting with John in that this is a chance for her to start again, a chance for a new life to really build something. And yet something else devastating happens and that is the start of World War II. And she has to contend with that issue as well. It's very sad the way you write about Adelaide only having a, a fraction of memories about her mother leaving. I think you say it was never spoken about, certainly not by her father uh, and very little by those around her. And this is always going to leave a gaping 
hole in her life. Yeah, again, very much of that time where, you know, if there was an illness in a family or some kind of scandal and secret, it just, you know, it wasn't talked about or children were sent away. Quite different to, I guess, well, hopefully, how family issues are dealt with nowadays. But, you know, very much children kept in the dark. And then, of course, you're left to try and figure it out as a child, aren't you? And your imagination comes into it. And um, what did I say in the book? She... Um, imagines that her mother could be off with Alice um, using flamingos to play croquet or off looking after Bay away um, a, a group of boys um, just like Wendy um, did in Peter Pan so um, yeah a lot, a lot that can be left to a child's imagination. Mm. This is such a beautiful love story this is John's second marriage so Adelaide feels that doesn't she? She there are questions that she doesn't ask of him, but it doesn't seem to harm the relationship. You know, they make it work. John is devoted and she is devoted. But this thing, say, her husband, she adored the sounds that it formed on her tongue. You know, this is still new for her, just having another person, somebody else in bed with her. It was all so strange and miraculous. Yeah, so you've got two people both with, you know, sad pasts um, and for both of them it's, a, it's a, again, a chance for a, a new beginning, a new start and wanting to bring the positive side and not allow all those negatives and all that baggage to, to influence um, their relationship um, to give it the, the best shot they can and, again, a little bit stymied by John's sense of duty and joining the war effort. Well, yes, that's the next question. I mean, why, why did he feel so strongly about joining up? You know, newly married, very happy, but he, he signed up pretty quickly. Well, I think that was a case for um, a lot of men back then, particularly as um, in that timing in sort of 1939, 1940, it was still prior to when the government brought in conscription. So it was definitely still a choice, but um, I mean, I sort of sit there and think, you know, if, if war broke out today, you know, and now that women, you know, are part of the military, what would my feelings be? Would I feel that I wanted to do my duty for my country and, and, and volunteer in the same way? It's a big question to think about. And it's those kind of questions that even after when John makes it to Egypt, he's still contemplating the strange new life and, and the choices he's made and whether it's the right choice or the wrong choice and the consequences that it might have with Adelaide or his life. Yeah, so it's a, it's a, it's a tricky decision. And in the meantime, when he uh, is on service, his letters start to come for Adelaide and her reaction to them is so visceral. I mean, she effectively turns them into a, a shrine. You know, I, I, you know, I understand reading them over and over again, but she needs to see them and she needs to see all of them. Yeah, again, so, you know, back then letters were were it in terms of you know your link with somebody who who was not in the same area as you and not having that family support either those letters became her complete support network um and as you say she lays them out throughout the house and her house becomes her own sort of yeah shrine of all his words and sentences and images um sketches and uh, that's how she makes it through her days. 
without him. It's really visceral for the for the times when letters don't come. You describe it as her hand reaching inside the letterbox and clawing at nothing but the darkness. I, that my heart broke for her in those instances because it was it was so much what what she was holding on to. Yeah, and um, you know a lot of the the soldiers are reading their letters and diaries. Um, a lot of letters, a lot of what people figured out to do, um, both at New Zealand and over in in Europe or the Middle East, they numbered the letters because it would be so inconsistent in when they would arrive. So you might get letter number seven before you got letter number three, and that was one of um, the tactics to try and keep correspondence in order. John's story, because we hear from him also, uh, and as you say, the struggles that he's going through, you know, physically, the sand in his lungs and his in his eyes, but also dreaming of home, thinking of home, and those we hear that, don't we? The thoughts of home were often what kept the soldiers going. Very much the case for John. Yeah, so John's great love in life, uh, well, apart from Adelaide, hopefully, uh, is uh, fly fishing having grown up in Canterbury and then being placed in an environment like Egypt where it's just desert and sand and heat and that's you know when you look off into the horizon you start seeing those ripples of the air and it looks like water and it's getting that sensation that yes I, I remember what it's like to stand in a river and cast my line and feel the lure in my hand it's, you know, those memories that sort of keep him grounded in, in this strange environment. Ruth, having spent so much time with this book, in its iterations, it's now published, what's next for you? Well, it's such a, it's such a sort of a sense of relief to get this one finally out into the world. And, um, of course, you know, doing press like this. I, as I said before, I get lots of ideas. So I have a million starts of stories, which is why um, something like the first pages prize um, that I was longlisted for in 2020 um, sort of made for me because um, I have a lot of first pages. My problem is getting to the middle and to the end. I've often read about Stephen King's writing diligence where he sits down every morning and cranks out 2,000 words. And so I feel as though I just need to channel my inner Stephen King and, uh, you know, get cracking with the next one. Barefoot by R.V. Bailey is published by Eden Street Press.